I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, we are in the middle of our Proverbs series on wisdom, and we are in the middle of a sub-series in that uh, Proverbs series on wisdom on finances. Last week, we looked at working hard and the ethic of working hard and why that's important and why God values hard work as worship. And uh, today, we're going to look at the path of financial margin in 1984, when I left college, I left Moody Bible Institute, uh, there was a, a person that I didn't know well, but they chose to confide in me their dilemma. And their dilemma was this. Uh, they were graduating at uh, Moody Bible Institute in 1984. They had a job making $3.35 an hour. They worked for uh, about 20 hours a week, and they had $16,000 in credit card debt. And they didn't know what they were going to do. They couldn't pay the interest, 28%. How does a kid in a Christian college end up with $16,000? I don't know what that value is today, but it's a lot of money when you're making $3.35 an hour. How does someone end up with credit card debt that high and that controlling without a plan? Well, that's a, that's a big problem. And today we're going to look at a problem that America has acquired in debt and a lack of financial margin that we've grown comfortable with that I think we should not be comfortable with. Uh, we're going to be looking at Proverbs 22, verse 7, and Colossians 2, 13 to 14. In 1970, uh, the average income, let me pull that up, the average income was $8,730 a year in 1970. Today, it's $74,738 a year. That's household incomes. In that time, there's been a rise of 12% in income. In that same time, there has been a 24,500% rise in revolving debt, in credit card debt. The world has changed. We use credit cards like it's normal. And we keep amount on there that we think we can balance or we think we can withhold. Americans have the appearance of wealth that is built on an unsettling and unstable foundation of debt. This morning, wisdom is calling you to throw off the chains of un uncontrollable personal debt. I'm not going to tell you that I'm opposed to debt in this sermon. I'm not going to promote a lifestyle without debt. I think there's a time for wise debt. I think there's a time that which it, it actually makes sense. Um, but the, the picture that I've seen as I've studied this is far worse than I imagined. That we are balancing, teetering. Families are teetering on the edge of insolvency because of the amount of debt that they've taken on. Kids are growing up with it modeled for them that debt is the way to get the American dream. From 1970 to 2023, we have seen radical changes and cool toys. But how many of those cool toys have been purchased with money that wasn't ours? Money that we use and are paying for still to this day. How many are, 
How many here bought an iPad that they're still paying for years later? Debt can be bitter slavery. As we begin, let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would know freedom, the freedom that you intended for us. I pray that we would look seriously at our debt and count the cost. And Father, I pray that you would help us to get out from underneath slavery. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that this sermon isn't going to be for everybody. I know some of you have managed well uh, your finances, and, uh, but I would argue that there's more of us here that struggle with debt than we would like to admit. So let's dig in. Debt can become bitter slavery. In Proverbs 22, verse 7, this is our verse for the first two points, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Thousand years or 900 years B.C., slavery and and, uh, and poverty and debt were different animals than they are today. Today, they have bankruptcy. Then, if you couldn't pay your bills, you could be sold into slavery to pay your bills. So there was a real fear about debt, where today you can almost push, and you can almost push a restart button where you can just decide not to pay, keep continue to get in debt, continue to get in debt, and then push a button and say, well, the government's going to let me off the hook. Seven years later, I'll get another shot at this. Debt still can become a bitter slavery and steal the lives that we were meant to have. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. What does that mean? Does that mean when you borrow money, the bank can come around and order you around? No, that's not the way it works in the United States. What is the slavery that we experience when we're under debt that we have a hard time paying? Well, it robs the life that we were intended to have when our debt is so high that it steals peace. It steals our shalom. It steals our joy. It gives us anxiety. How does the, rule, how does the rich rule over the poor? The poor ends up using, in this case, is the one who is a slave to debt, the borrower, the borrower loses options. Have you been in a position where you weren't sure if what you were about to buy was going to get covered? Have you been in line where you've got your groceries or you've got your stuff and you pull out the plastic and you hope it covers, but you're not sure if it's going to cover? Have you known the anxiety of finding out that it's declined? I have been in that line and my card has been declined. It's a slavery. It takes away joy. This passage, I look at Proverbs and I wonder, why isn't there a whole lot more here about that? And I think because it wasn't written in 2024 or 2023. I think if Proverbs was written today, we would hear a whole lot about that because I think it's a serious problem that we have in America. So let me give you some of the statistics. In the second quarter of 2023, we passed the $1 trillion mark in credit card debt. That's a big number. We don't even know what that means, right? 
1.031 trillion in credit card debt in America. The average credit card holder held $6,568 in credit card debt in the second quarter of 2023. Individuals 75 or older had the most debt, $8,100. That was most disconcerting for me because I think when we're younger, we think, oh, we'll pay that off someday. But what that actually means is that people never pay it off. They pay credit card debt for their whole lives. You are either a person who does credit card debt and lives with that, or you're a person who fights against that and chooses not to have credit card debt. And I'm going to look at other debts too, but primarily we're going to focus on the debt that we all know is dangerous and we shouldn't have. Those under 35 had the least at 3700 that means those under 35, I'm telling you, your debt probably will grow if you stay on the same pattern that you're at. Or the banks are going to give you more room to get into more debt. What happened back when I was in college? They actually sent us credit cards and put it in the box in our college dorm like mailbox. Every kid was given a credit card before he had a job with a credit limit and the ability to go get in debt. The bank wanted us to be enslaved to credit cards before we left college. I don't know. I, I only talked to one person. I have no idea what the other credit card debts amounted to. But they began their lives fighting against this demon of debt. So let's look at some passages that are around this, that are around this and then we'll... Continue to dig in. Proverbs 21, verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes to poverty. <clears throat> this is going to require planning. It's going to require planning to not go into debt. But the hastiness, does anybody know what it feels like to be hasty in a purchase? Anybody sat there at the computer late at night and decided to buy something on Amazon? that they regretted a month later or a day later? How many purchases have we made of things we really didn't even want? We certainly didn't need and didn't improve the quality of our lives. The plans of the diligent ask the question, Lord, this is the finances you've given me. These are the wages that you've given me. What do you want me to do with them? How do you want me to live? But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. What does poverty look like? Poverty doesn't necessarily mean you don't make a lot of money. Poverty looks like you're one check away from insolvency. Poverty looks like hanging on by your fingernails. Not sure if you're going to be able to pay the bills this month. Poverty. Proverbs 22, 26 to 27 says, But not only those who give pledges, who put up security for debts, if you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? So I put in Proverbs 22, 26 to 27 because in 900 B.C. this was a concern. This does not mean, as some have presumed, that you can't 
take out a loan with your kids or with your friends. Or This does not mean that. It doesn't mean that all loans are bad. It means that there was a pledge that you gave that actually put your household at risk and that you shouldn't put the very bed that you're under under risk because you're tying yourself to someone else. So that would be 900 B.C. that was their main concern. I would argue that our concern today is, are you taking on debts? Like when you go in for a car loan, let's consider car loans for a minute. One of the most frustrating things for me with going in to look at a car is the salesman tries to ask me, what can I afford for a payment? Without talking about what the car actually costs. What are they saying? How much margin do you have in your budget? How much room do you have left? By the way, if you see colors on my hands, Hazel thought I would preach better with a colorful hand. So forgive me for that. How much margin do you have? We're going to get you in the nicest car we can get you in so that you squeak by in your budget. I've got a graph here that talks about the loans that we have. Mortgages account for 70%. Home equity lines of credit, 5.8%. Auto loans are 9.4%. Student loans are also 9%. Credit cards, 2%. Which costs the most, by the way. The average household pays $1,000 a month in interest and fees to their credit cards. This debt that we're carrying is crushing. Isaiah 55, 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I don't know what to add to that. Except how many purchases has Todd Berge made that didn't satisfy? Have you ever been at Christmas with a kid who is so excited about the gift and literally within one day is disinterested in that gift? How long did it satisfy? Are we spending our money on the things that actually matter to us, that bring value, that have eternal value, that build healthy homes, that build healthy lives? Luke 12, 15, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Larry Burkett, the first guy that I heard that preached in churches about money and tried to give wisdom to Christians at the beginning of this mountain of debt that the church would take on and that the United States would take on, Christians would take on. And I remember him saying, don't help your kid get into a house he can't afford. Because if you get him into a house he can't afford, he's going to want a car like the neighbors. He's going to want furniture like the neighbors. He's going to want to live up with the, you know, measure up to the Joneses. And you're going to end up creating debt just because you brought them right to the cusp of what they could afford. Let them afford what they can afford. That was Larry Burkett's wisdom. It's stuck with me ever since. What's at the heart of that? We are a covetous people. We see what somebody else has and we want that and we want it now. So, cha-ching. We go out and get it. 
Luke 12, 15. And he said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does it look like to be content with what you have? Well, contentment isn't something you can purchase. Contentment is something you have irregardless of what you have for possess or possess. Money doesn't make you content. Things don't make you content. Contentment is from the Lord. And Paul in a famous verse said that I have learned to be content with much and I've been con- learned to be content with little. Have you learned to be content? And the love of money is a problem. Now, here's the issue. The issue is for three weeks I'm going to be preaching about money and there's this danger of loving money, of focusing on money, and having it become something that steals your heart and affections because you spend your time thinking about money all the time. Or you can not think about it and you can go into debt and be owned by the fact that you don't have money and that you have these debts. The truth is we need to manage it as unto the Lord. I spent the majority of my adult life not caring about money. I was in construction. I could work harder and make more of it. If I worked more hours, I made more money. I went on vacations. I did what I wanted. And then God called me into ministry. And I was afraid. I was about to have my income cut in half. More than cut in half. And I'm thinking... How do I go to my church and say, I need you all to pay me what I'm used to making so I can be content? And I learned a great life lesson. I was afraid of letting God down. And I sat in my friend's house, Blair Warman's house in Florida, for a week looking at my finances from the year before and looked at everything asking the question, is this what I really want? Is this what I really need? I found out I was spending money I had no idea I was spending. I found out there were licenses and things that had just continued without me even paying attention. And a remarkable thing happened. As I trusted God with my finances, and I trusted God with the plan that He had for my life, I began to pay off debts. I began began to become free. Isn't it remarkable that you could make half the money and become free? I became free. For the first time, I wasn't owned by my money. And I wasn't owned by my debt. Debt can become bitter slavery. Wisdom is crying out to you this morning to do something different than the rest of the people in the United States. Stop taking on debt. Fight to get out from underneath debt. Real freedom in speaking financially is debt-free. We'll talk in a minute about why we do that. 
The second point is living in a position of financial strength is wise. This sermon's title is Financial Margin. What do I mean by financial margin? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. If you lost your income today, how long would you last? If you lost your income today, how long before you're in trouble? Financial margin is having space between what you've saved and what you owe. Having space between what you need to be brought in. Do you, if you reach a point like I had this crisis, Lord, you need to continue to provide for me and your faithfulness is that you provide for me so that I can maintain this debt and this machine that I've chosen because I wasn't content. Or am I willing to have a gap between what I've saved and what I make so that there's room to breathe? Can you lose your job for a year and survive? Now, if I was preaching this sermon in Africa, I would preach it very different. For we are one of the richest nations in the world, and we are making more money, but it seems like the more money we make, the more debt we take. As if we're saying to God, keep making me my money so I can keep going into debt. So I can keep living the life that I think would satisfy me. And yet he calls us in this verse, it's not with derision that he's talking about the rich. In this verse he says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. The rich actually is the person who has the ability to take care of the poor. The borrower is the one who is able to lend. That person has margins so that he can take care of those around him. He can give to those around him. And when we live with no margin, we have no ability to care for those and the argument is to live in a position of financial strength with margin. Now why? There are some who want to live with margins so that they just can have more money. There are some who want to live with margins so they can show off to their friends how good they've been with their money or how much of it they have. Or they can go to the nicest restaurants or they can go to the nicest vacations or they can purchase what they want to purchase. And I'm not against spending money, but that's not the value of having money and having margin. The value of having margin is shalom. We heard these last week, and you're going to hear them again next week. The four values that we fight for, shalom, peace in your home. When you have margin, it produces peace. If you could bottle peace, how much could you sell it for? Peace comes with financial margin. Service, the ability to care for others, the ability to be generous. First Timothy says, tell the rich among you to be rich, who are rich, be ready to share. Be generous and ready to share. The only way you can be generous and ready to share is if you have financial margin. You can serve and care for others when you have financial margin. Security, caring for the people around you, leaving a legacy only happens when you have margin. 
There are moments in my life that if I would have died, I would have left my wife in a pickle. I would have left her in a difficult spot. Financial margin brings security, and ultimately this is about stewardship, which means it's all for God's glory, and we are trying to use his funds that he's entrusted to us to actually produce good, not just the next iPhone or the next big TV. And I'm not, don't go home feeling guilty about buying a TV. Go home and ask yourself, do you have margin? Have you built in savings? And are you paying down debt and getting out from underneath debt? Honor the Lord with your wealth. Look at Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Is there any room left in your budget to give to God? Proverbs 13.22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Now, I don't believe an inheritance is simply about money. I think we leave a spiritual inheritance that is far more valuable than money. But there is, are we leaving our kids with our debts? Are we leaving our kids with a gift? With something that spans and beyond us? Proverbs 24, 27, Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. This talks about counting the cost and getting, don't just build your house right away. One thing that I've seen in this next generation that's coming up is they want what their parents had when they were 50 when they're 20. They want the house, they want the cars, they want, and my generation and my, that I grew up with, and maybe I, my generation is the problem, I don't know. Because prior to 1970, people didn't buy anything with debt hardly. You, you bought a house and you paid for it and you lived without debt. Prepare your work outside. This is about planning. This is about thinking through what you're doing. 1 Corinthians 16.2, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul is talking about coming from church to church in Philippi and Corinth and Ephesus and collecting a gift that that church would give and send to Jerusalem where they are impoverished. And the idea is that they've planned their finances enough that there's room to give. And then 1 Timothy 5.8, which has been ringing in my head for two weeks, and I finally woke up one morning and I turned to Jeannie and said, I'm so convicted. And she said, I'm convicted by the same verse. Let me read it for you. 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The picture is, is that we have room to provide for our family. That there's margin no way to do this without margin. Have we planned for that? Or do we spend everything we make and more so? There's a rule that I've heard many times. It's not scriptural. But it does lead to margin. 
It's the 80-10-10 rule, which is live on 80% of what you make, save 10%, and give 10%. Next week, we'll talk about giving, and I'm not promoting this rule. What I'm promoting today, that is if you're in trouble, uh, there's a little thing in your bulletin. Let me pull it up. Financial Peace University. If you're interested in getting help, we're going to do a class in January, starting in January uh, or in the new year, if there's enough people that want to do this. And we will take you through the nine classes with the goal that we can get healthy, that we can take this seriously. Finally, I want to point out three lies that we tend to believe, and I want to dispel them and tell you that these are not true. Lie one, I need this, it will make my life better. Think twice about that. Number two, when I get older, I will get out of debt. Everything I've read says that's not true. Number three, if I make more money, I will get out of debt. Again, not true. I have seen people who've made very little live with a great deal of margin. In fact, some books, non-Christian, would say that teachers tend to be, will live with far more margin than lawyers and doctors. That's a phenomenal stat. They make a lot less. How much you make isn't really what makes the difference on whether you're living with margin. It has to do with how you manage your money. I've been a pastor, a preaching pastor of this church now since September, 4, since September 7th, 2014. This is the first time I've preached on this. Um, it's the first time I'm doing a series on money. I'm doing a three-part series on money. I think I waited too long. I think many of us are enslaved. And I think we need to get out from underneath that slavery. I want to shift this sermon now to a different kind of debt. Our country has a debt of $33.13 trillion. Anybody have any idea what that means? More than your debt. It makes us feel better, right? <laughs> At least it's not that. That's the debt we're passing to our children. I don't begin to understand the implications economically of our financial debt. I'm not preaching on that. I actually am telling you that that is insurmountable for our generation to pay. We're going to have to pass that to the next generations to see it be paid. And what I wanted to tie it to is the spiritual debt that we have because of our sin. That it is far more insurmountable than our national debt. That Jesus paid a debt so we could live free. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, read with me if you will. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, 
Then he set aside, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God the Father paid a debt that we could never pay. Whatever you might be feeling today in your personal debt, I promise you, you can get on the right side of it. I promise you that Christ can help you with that. But when we stand before God, when we have our moment at the Bema Seat of Christ and we get to thank Him for paying the debt that we could never pay, that was insurmountable for us, We're moving towards today celebrating communion. Maybe, like me, you have experienced debt that controlled and felt like slavery. I want you to know that sin is far worse. Sin is a debt that steals and robs and leaves us dead on the side of the road. And God came and lifted us up from the hole that we were in and nailed our debt to the cross and paid our debt. I would be remiss in talking about debt, financial, if I didn't acknowledge the God who saved us through the power of Jesus Christ by nailing our debt to the cross. Let me read it again. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our treasure is not here. Our treasure is in heaven. Jesus encourages us to build our treasure in heaven. And I would argue that while we're managing the money and the things that he's given us here in a way that we think honors him, in a way that produces something for the future, for eternity, in our kids, in our family, in our friends, in our ministries, at the same time, all of the things that money can buy here on earth doesn't hold a candle to what we have in Christ and what we have in eternity. Some of us may think like Americans when we think about heaven, that we might think that it looks like really nice cars and really nice houses and really nice stuff. Think of it in terms of really great relationship with the living God and a really great relationship with each other. Unhindered love, unhindered joy, unhindered peace. Every day, beautiful. It's not about stuff. Romans 13, 18 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I don't think this is nearly so much about debt as it is about what we are supposed to be giving to each other and feeling indebted about. I owe you a debt of love. Because Christ has loved me, it is my pleasure to pour out whatever love he gives me through me for you. And that's the church, is this debt of love poured out on each other. God gave us freedom. Freedom to live, freedom to love, freedom to 
freedom to flourish. And the church in the last 50 years has put on a debt. Picture swimming without a backpack on or swimming with a backpack with bricks in it. Debt has piled up and it is sucking away our life. And God came for us to live. Don't let him steal this life from you. Don't let debt steal this life from you. In 1863, it was declared in the Emancipation Proclamation that all person held as slaves shall be free. That proclamation cost. It angered some. It was frustrating. I would like those here at the Bridge Church, those who are watching online, to have their own Emancipation Declaration. I choose to get out of debt. Not wait, but do it now. To walk the path of wisdom, we must set aside the chains of debt. What's on the other side? There's a kitchen table in Florida at the Warman's house where I would get up at four in the morning with all my credit card bills from the previous year and all of my statements from the previous year looking at everything that I spent for 12 months. That table is a table of freedom now. I mention it every time I see Blair and Sharon. Most every time I see Blair and Sharon, when I go down there, I say, you know what happened at that table when everybody else was sleeping in the house? I found freedom. I found the joy of paying off a loan and then turning that into paying off another loan and paying off another loan. And all of a sudden, strangest thing happened. What God had given me was enough. It was more than enough. Has God given you enough to live free? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, primarily I want to thank you this morning for releasing us from the debt of sin, a debt that we could never pay. And then I want to apologize for the wasted money and the wasted time choosing to live in debt. Father, I think back of the choices that I made and I'm not, um, I'm content that your forgiveness is enough. I'm asking that the congregation this morning, my friends, wouldn't go home feeling guilt except insofar as it gets them to action and that tomorrow would be a day of freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.